one of the things I love about having a podcast is the fact that it allows me to have conversations I otherwise normally wouldn't. And this is, this is exactly one of those things. And on the artwork for this episode, I called this a bucket list interview because for me, it truly was. I found Phil M. Jones. He's the author of the book, Exactly What to Say, through listening to the audiobook of, of that book, Exactly What to Say. And I looked him up, and he's all over the place, best-selling author, speaking, doing all the stuff that I would love to be known for one day. And I just followed him for a while on social media and was reading more of his books and thought to myself, you know what? It'd be great to just be able to talk to him, pick his brain. So in true podcaster fashion, I said, well, let's see if I can use this as my foot in the door. And I reached out to him on LinkedIn because that's the only place I could find contact info for him. And I did the cold ask. I sent him a connection request and paid him a few compliments, told him what I got from his book and what it did for me and that I would just love to be able to capture part of his story on the podcast. I think it would really relate to my listeners. And he responded which is awesome when that happens because not everybody responds when you do something like that. And he put me in touch with a woman that works with him, Bonnie. So Bonnie, for listening to this, thank you for all your help lining up the interview. We coordinated schedules and we made it happen. And what's interesting, right? You hear people say you never want to meet your heroes because you have them on this pedestal and they can knock you down. You know, Phil, I didn't knock Phil off his pedestal, but what I loved about Phil was he was straight up with me. I asked him a question in the interview you'll hear and he was like, I'll tell you a question I don't like being asked. I said, okay, sure, what is it? And he said, that one, the one I just asked. And I was like, oh, man. And that's never happened to me before in an interview. It was interesting. And, you know, even before I edited this out, I, I was a little nervous, and I was just kind of shooting the shit with Phil and talking about stuff, and he was over in England, and before we know it, we're talking about the worst, you know, small topic, small, small conversation, uh, small talk, there it is, small talk conversation of weather. And he cracks his joke. He's like, well, here we are. Miles, welcome to Miles' podcast about the weather. And I'm like, oh, great. Listen, dummy, keep the conversation moving. He just, he's calling you out respectfully. And then after the podcast, I was sharing with him my book that I've now published at the time I hadn't published yet called Unseen Work. And at the time, it had a different subtitle. And thanks to Phil, I published it with a different subtitle because when I was explaining my book to Phil and explaining the subtitle and the contents and how I was going to promote it, he didn't mince words. He basically said, oh, that sounds like another self-published book. You know, why should I read that? And what you're giving me is not giving me a reason to buy it and et cetera. And that one stung because I was super excited and thought, here's my moment. I'm going to impress this guy. And he knocked me down a few pegs. But I loved it. Looking back, I love it so much. And I'm so thankful, Phil, because it's better because of it, because of that conversation. And this guy brings value. Since the original podcast aired, he has posted it on social media so many times. He's got a link to it on his website. He's brought so many traffic, so much traffic to this podcast. It's great. So, Phil, thank you. You see this one again. I appreciate you. And you're one of my absolute favorites. That's why I saved you to the end here. The best for last, as they say. This is season three, episode 20, Phil M. Jones. And his three words were curiosity, empathy, and courage which you'll hear all about. And the guy definitely has courage. You know, he shoots you straight and it takes courage to do that. And I got to say, it took courage for me to take his advice and not just get defensive, but I took it, I put it into action. And a lot of my own endeavors have been better because of Phil. So I hope you all love this interview. It's unique for all the reasons I just said, and you guys get something out of it as well. Let's hear from Phil. All right, all the way from the UK, 
Phil. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So I found you for your book, Exactly What to Say, which I consumed the audiobook version of. And it was one of those rare books. Well, as I was listening to it, I was literally saying out loud, holy crap, that's awesome, or that's perfect, or yes, and <laughs> pulling over my car to write down what you were saying because it just rang so true with me, and you had it in such a way that I was able to put it into practice right away. So this is a great opportunity for me just to say thank you, at least virtually to you. I really found value in that piece of content. Thank you so much. No, it's been a joy seeing the impact that's had on the world and just how far it's traveled. And it's fun for me because I love to give book recommendations. And every once in a while, people will say something that they're struggling with the sales technique or how to get clients. And I always say, here you go. You got to check this out. And it's been fun for me leading up to this interview. Even I just had someone text me the other day and say, holy crap, exactly what to say is amazing. Thank you. And so you make me look good in my network as well. This will do. Win, 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 right? We're happy with that kind of result. So let's talk a little bit about Phil before you knew exactly what to say. What was your life like? before you figured out that magic formula for sales and marketing? Um, well, how far back do you want me to go, Miles? Um, I've been pretty persuasive and influential from a fairly early age. So my first business was when I was 14 years of age. And I guess I've learned a lot of what I've learned the hard way. I was either fortunate or stupid to find myself in a number of senior leadership positions in my late teens, early 20s. And I took myself into some positions that, that were probably above my experience level at the time. And there's an interesting thing about being in a senior leadership position when you are ridiculously young. Firstly, you don't know what you don't know. And then secondly, you don't get a great deal of respect from the people you're looking to lead on face value. So people judge books by covers and there you are on the back foot before anything starts. So when it comes to looking at the things that would make people successful, I would study others that were successful. That simple, really. And I would be always looking to communicate to others in ways of me using third party stories. So instead of me saying, here's what I think you should do is I'd be saying I was watching what Steve was doing and the way that Steve seems to work things that get better results than where you're at right now is he does blank, blank and blank. You might want to be more like Steve or Karen was uh, was working with a customer earlier. And what I heard her do was blank, blank and blank. Right. That became my leadership style to win credibility is I would just share the third party stories of others. But what this created was a fascination to me to study the behavior of other people. And that's what led me towards the creation of a number of patterns, particularly in language, and particularly to learn that the biggest difference between those that do good and those that do great is the ones that do great know exactly what to say, when to say, and how to make it count. This was the recurring theme. So I found it fascinating, and it it became a a sprinkling into some of my trainings and some of my conversations, and then later became a, a fully documented body of work. That's really interesting. So I'm just reflecting on the third party thing. And that's something I wish I would have thought of when I was in similar situations. Because like you, I found myself in some senior leadership roles in my early 20s. You know, that moment where somebody's been at the company and reports to you longer than you've been alive, right? They, yeah. That they've been at that company. In that. And uh, I really wish I would have thought of that because you're right. It, it removes that ego that they have of feeling like they have to report to this young gun. And what does he know when you make it about be more like Steve or Karen, like you said, that's really correct. That's a really good piece of advice. You said judging a book by its cover. And that's another thing I was curious about because you've written not just one, but several books. And so many people that I know will say, oh, you know, I wish I could finish a book. I've started several, but I haven't finished. You know, (laughs) I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Why do you think it is that you've finished not just one, but several? You know, what drove you to bundle up all that experience and put your name in print? 
I, I think they're all for different reasons. Let me share with you, first of all, the reason why I think many people don't finish a book. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is they didn't really have a clear idea what the book was for. And it meant that the book was actually primarily for them and that well, they wanted to become a published author. And because they wanted the book for them, they also wanted it to include like everything and leave nothing out. And because of which, the thing can never be completed. In my mind, particularly a nonfiction book, a nonfiction book is a tool. It's a tool to help you communicate something that you've been communicating maybe well in a one-to-one -one format or in a one-to-few format. And now you want to move it to a one-to-many format. And you want to own that piece of IP as yours. So you want to date stamp the fact that actually this was my work before anybody else's. And you want to be able to get it into a concise format that can go and serve far more people than you can reach by yourself. That's where a book becomes a useful tool. Yet what many people look to be able to do is to write a book full of new thoughts that haven't been tested, haven't found audience yet. And my belief would be that before you can sell a thousand books, you've got to get 10 people to buy the idea. To your point, a lot of people don't take it that far because they're so focused on themselves that they're not talking to other people about the idea. They're probably scared that someone's going to steal it. So no one's bought into it. And then it's just in their head. It's, yeah. And there, are, really there are two types of nonfiction book in the world. Like there is the, the how-to book that should be something that is based on a huge amount of either evidence or personal experience. And then there's the thought leader book, right? That is something that is forward facing, something that is a big idea, something that makes you think differently about the future. And to complete a thought leadership type book, you probably already need to have an audience. And then if it's a how-to book, you probably need to have the experience in having done that how-to thing to a quantity of people so your credibility stacks up. Those two things need to sit side by side. I've written like seven and a half books now, and I'll share with you the reason on each of them is kind of different. So my first book was a book called Toolbox that I published back in 2011, and that was based on the fact that I needed a book. My training career was going remarkably well. I wanted to get on more stages from a speaking point of view. And one thing that could assist your biography is published author of, right? Like it's one thing that can affect a, a speaker intro or sure. wherever it might be. And I think there's a key point that you should always be working on what you want your life resume to look like. What do you want your introduction to be able to look like? And you should be collecting the evidence as you go to be able to make that true. So me producing that first book was allowing me to be able to have that permission to be introduced to stage as published author of, right? So this was me thinking, well, I got to get a book into the market. And that's pretty much what I did. I created a book. What I then did with my second book, which is a book called Magic Words, was I was at a mastermind group where people were saying to me how difficult it was to get a book published. And I said to them, it's not that hard. You could publish a book in like a week. So my big mouth got me into trouble. <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah, show us. Yeah. And a few days prior to entering into that mastermind group is I had just delivered a one day training program for a group of, of customer service professionals that didn't want to be seen as salesy, but needed to be more persuasive in their language patterns. And I created a two page PDF takeaway that was 17 words to um, 17 magic words to influence and persuade people. And it was a two page PDF takeaway at the end of a course. These magic words had formed part of many a training that I delivered in the past. So I thought, big mouth, get me into trouble. What would happen if I turn this two-page PDF and just repurpose it into a book and fill out some of the blanks, which is what I did. I turned it around in a week, and we produced a book called Magic Words. That book uh, went on to, to sell over 200,000 copies, but really it was not much more than a pamphlet. I produced another number of other books that had how-to purpose in mind. One was called Philosophies that was a quote book, 
And that was on the back of a group coaching program that I ran with 5,000 people in it. And I shared a weekly philosophy and a year-long program. So all I did is I collected up the 52 philosophies and put them into a book as almost a capstone for me closing out that coaching program. I then planned on creating a series of guides, simple how-to guides. I wrote a book called Straightforward, Straightforward to More Appointments, and it was supposed to be a series of different straightforward books, but I only ever did the first one, didn't get around to doing any of the others. This brought me around to the fact that I was looking to be able to propel my, my business more internationally. It was going through a geographic move from the UK to the US, and I thought I should probably um, do something with a book to create something worth talking about over this period. And I thought about some new book ideas that I had. And then this thorn in my side was the, the Magic Words book that I produced in the past was never really good enough. I didn't produce it properly. It was a quick turnaround project. It was, you know, cover design by Fiverr.com. It was like it was, you know, producing a book in a week. It wasn't me crafting a piece of literature or crafting a tool that was to stand the test of time. Sure. So instead of me doing a new piece, I went back and I wrote that book as it should be written. And that's exactly what to say exactly how to sell and exactly where to start came off the back of the success of exactly what to say with a couple of major publishing houses asking to buy the rights off me for exactly what to say and me refusing, but then getting the agreement to be able to do two new books instead. And then more recently wrote exactly what to say for real estate agents with a co-author that was very much specifically positioned towards a user group, which was fun to be able to, to write a piece through a lens that was very narrow yet still very deep. Sure. So how many books did you self-publish before you got your first, you know, big deal with a publishing house? Um, four. Nice. Um, and I would now probably never do a book with a publishing house again. Oh, really? Why is that? I like to own my work. I like to be able to control the distribution. I like to be able to utilize its growth. I like to be flexible with the price point. I like to just, just own the IP and my experience with probably a, a longer off-air conversation, um, <laughs> sure. but my experience with with publishing houses and the volume of books I've been able to shift through my own distribution network means that it just commercially makes more sense for me to own my IP. Yeah, and you, you're a household name at this point in many respects, so you, you can still move books without the big marketing powerhouse of a publishing company. Well, I think that's part of the issue. There is no big marketing power oh, yeah. of a publishing house. That's, that's the myth that helps get them more deals, I guess, huh? Because that's what I hear. Well, I wrote a book, and yeah. based on a TED Talk I was supposed to give in April, but that got postponed because of COVID. And so yeah. I've been sort of waiting on it because I wanted it to be after the TED Talk. And so many people, that's what they say, oh, don't self-publish. No one's going to buy it. You got to have one of the big guys because they'll market it for you and sell more. And so I think that's that might be a myth that you're busting for us right now. Well, there's a handful of scenarios that, that it might be true. So if you're Mark Manson on book two, and you're looking at a seven-figure advance, I, I think you may well be into a situation that that is a no-brainer deal to take. But if you're looking at publishing as a viewpoint for it to be able to increase distribution, really what most, most publishing houses are looking at right now is to say, what is your reach? What do you have the ability to be able to shift? And then the majority of publishing deals result in them owning the whole of the IP, and the cheapest place for you to go out and buy your own book is through Amazon. You can't buy it from your publisher cheaper than you can buy it off Amazon as a consumer. Hmm, that's really interesting. Well, there you but go. But they're different models for different purposes. Like there's no one right or wrong. I've self-published, I've traditionally published, and I've gone through hybrid publishers too. And, and there is good in all of those models. It just depends on the purpose behind why you would want to do a book. Right. Yeah, there's no one size fits all, which makes nope. a lot of sense. Correct. It's just all about purpose. And I think 
the one thing that should be crystal clear to anybody moving into the publishing space is, is what do you want this book to do for you? Yeah, that's great advice. Another thing I'm curious about with you and all that you've accomplished and you know global footprint that you've established, mm-hmm. how do you maintain your level that you're at right now, let alone grow it? I mean, what are sort of, what are the habits, routines, things that you put in place to keep yourself fueled so that you can continue to walk out on stage and give so much as you do to clients and you know audiences to the size that you present to? Sure. I, I mean, I'm not a great habits guy. If, I, if I'm honest, I think I probably need to work harder on, on forming some regular habits. And that's largely become part of a, a, a hugely inconsistent life, right? With different countries, different time zones, different sleep habits, different work demands, et cetera. I sure. haven't been able to get into sync with five, six years of crazy scheduling. So the, the thing that I remain very clear of is, is who am I for and what am I in service of? Now, if I can't have a purpose towards my work, then that's where I lose all levels of motivation. And by purpose, I can quite happily borrow somebody else's, but it needs to be in service of something else. Simple example would be lots of clients will say, hey, can you, um, can you do a rehearsal of your speech? And I'm like, I can if you give me an audience. Yeah, you can't just speak to a blank wall, right? It's not going to be it's the same. It's not the way that I look to be able to work. I can, I, I can work in service of a problem, a need, a set of circumstances, and, and that's something huge that drives me. Simple habits that I look towards is, is try and stay well hydrated, try and stay, you know, keep, keep part of a pretty decent diet, stay connected and grounded and humble towards friends, family members, and loved ones. <sighs> Bit of exercise in there on a regular basis too. And one thing that really kept me sane when I'm when I'm traveling hard is something that people seem to be doing a little more of now while many people are in quarantine is is almost like these these virtual happy hours and the you know the virtual dinners the number of times I'd be away on the road and just catch up with a buddy over FaceTime while he or she was on the road and we'd connect and be able to debrief. The other biggie for me is to just stay humble with everything. Is it doesn't matter what I achieve, I'm I'm not really a big deal. And also to know that I'm only as good as my last performance. My favorite speech is my next one. My favorite client is the one I'm working on right now. And those things never change. So it keeps you kind of grounded and humble. It also means that the day you stop achieving at a high level, you can look at it and say I had a good run. I look at my success through entrepreneurship and my success through the authorship and success with the stuff on stage and view it very much as a, as a professional sports career. You know, there may well become a day that I incur an injury, hit a bump in a road, fall out of favor with a coach, whatever it might be, that means that this chapter of my career is over. And it's important for me to be able to live that, that way around because if and when that does happen, I'm not surprised. And I can then go and reinvent in a new chapter of life should the circumstances present themselves that way around. I love that idea. I've never heard it put that way before, but I think that makes total sense. And it's, it is a good way to stay humble, like you're saying. I'm going to have to adopt that same mindset. Drawing on that sports analogy, I'm curious then, what comes to my mind when you say that is a baseball card and right. and player stats, right? So when your career is over, be it by injury or you choose to retire, what do you want your baseball card of your career to say were your highlights and your stats? What do you want to be remembered for? I, I guess just remembered for, I mean, I don't know what the criteria would be of of somebody from from my work, but... I'd like a high level of useful score. Like, like you know, if, if this is a, a ranking of out of 10 in different areas, I think useful is something that could be very, very high praise for, for my level of work. I, I think 
know what I make up for in what I lack in, in maybe fame points I might make up for in prep points and in doing the work before the work to be ready for the work that's been had or or just diligent long-term effort and care and empathy those are the things that I'd like to be remembered for I I, I think from a professional speaking point of view I'd like to be remembered for having a style that is different to everybody else's I'd like to be remembered for the guy that nobody could say he's a little like blank because instead they're just seeing something that is is genuinely unique. That would be high praise too. Sure. And I'm sure taking that in another direction, instead of comparing you to somebody else, to have people compare others to you, right? That there's a little bit of Phil Jones and the next guy. That even yeah, I, I don't know. I don't need that um, in any way. Um, I, I'm always... Uh, I, I kind of itch a little when, when anybody says, so <laughs> he or she is the next blank. Sure. Um, I, I feel like that is unfair on both parties. And that's your humbleness coming through <laughs> that you were talked about before. Maybe. And so you rattled off a few words there, right? Useful, empathy, and, and several others. I love just individual words, and sometimes people string them into phrases. But I ask everyone, since the show is called Relish the Journey, as you look back on your journey and on this conversation, how would you describe your journey to where you're at so far if you had to describe it in just three words? Curiosity, empathy, and courage. Okay, I like that. Curiosity, empathy, and courage. So you touched on empathy a little bit, but you haven't yet so much on curiosity and, and courage. Could you speak on those two a little bit for us? Yeah, I think let's take the curiosity piece. I believe it's one of the most empowering qualities of the human form is curiosity and something that doesn't get encouraged enough it's highly prevalent and present in in young people particularly you know toddlers and infants is is remarkably curious and it's where our learning curve is steepest and our ability to say yeah but why yeah but how see any time in my life i've ever met anybody who's better at anything than i am i've never been in awe of them i've never said wow instead i've said how like how do you do what you do what can i learn from this how do i peel back the layer where can i get to the details and i have a very simple belief and it's a question rather than a statement and the question is, if somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? And I ask that question of myself a lot, and I have done throughout my life. Like if I look at some things that other people can do, like play for the NBA, I could ask myself the question, if somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? And a five foot ten uh, white guy from the UK that doesn't have the rhythmic skills to bounce a ball between his legs is probably not <laughs> going to get drafted, right? Like that's not going to happen. But there are thousands of other things that fall within my capabilities that that question has allowed me to be able to make decisions to say, which rabbits do I want to chase? Sure. And I'm always looking to study success. And curiosity has shown up at every other point in my life. Like I'm really great at, at, at digging beneath the surface and, and starting to be able to find out you know, where is there some more truth that can help me with my decision making, can help me with my next move. And I, I think if people were more curious and accepted less of the status quo and was prepared to to dig for facts or dig for um, for real information, they could probably go on and achieve more. Yeah, I totally subscribe to that. And sometimes I have to catch myself from saying it too much, but I often say that in a podcast. I'll preface a question by, I'm curious, I'm curious. Yep. Um, because I, I truly am. And that's why I love talking to such the wide variety of people that I do because I don't want to just be in one box of one type of niche. There's so much to learn from everybody across all these different verticals and life experiences that – you bet. Fuel the curiosity. And I really love the way you put it, right? About the, you don't ask 
who, but you ask how that or how forget exactly how you said I'll have to play it back. Yeah, but how and not wow. How yeah. and not wow. How and not wow. And, Beautiful. And, yeah. And the empathy piece is is about genuinely being able to see things from somebody else's point of view. I'm often introduced as a master of influence, somebody who has the ability to be able to influence at the highest of levels. And people think that influence is a skill that is something that you hold. And the only way that you can actually exercise the skill of influence is if you can show up with true empathy, because nobody will do anything that you invite them to do. People will only do things that they want to do. So the ability to influence means that you have to be able to go and genuinely see things from somebody else's point of view. You have to be able to show up and understand what are the things that are working against you here and how do you turn them into into allies as opposed to enemies. And I knew this even from a very early age, right? I knew that in these leadership positions as a kid that everybody I was looking to lead was looking at me thinking, what does this like spotty little kid know about my world? The second I could call that out without even calling it out, by actually exercising the communication of how I wanted them to be better by using role models in other areas of their life was a demonstration of empathy. And I think it's a word that gets talked about a lot, yet very few people understand it. Yet still the best definition of empathy that I've come across, I was introduced to maybe three years ago. I was speaking at an event uh, for a hearing care client out in, I think we're in Vegas. And I was a closing keynote and the morning keynote was a, was a guy that I didn't know at the time, but has become a friend, a guy called John Acuff. And in John's speech that I had the privilege of listening to, he described empathy as just caring about what the people you care about, care about. And that just rings so true with me, like so simply and eloquently put, it's like, ah, that's it. Nobody's been able to put it in such a succinct way in my, my world before. And I, I have that echo to me a lot even in hostile environments or difficult or challenging conversations is what am I doing to care about what the person I'm speaking to cares about, right? Like, like that's it. And that gives you the power to be able to go on and achieve so much more. And the courage piece is not necessarily like the courage to put on a uniform and go to battle. It's the courage to go your own way. It's the courage to show up and be vulnerable. It's the courage to try new things. It's the courage to say, okay, you're the big fish in the little pond. What happens if you change the pond? What happens if you go get somewhere where you're completely uncomfortable? And it's the bravery to say, uh-uh, I'm going to go put myself in a ridiculous environment where I might suck for a while and use that experience to allow me to be able to grow. I'm going to go and just dive in and, and see how this might figure itself out over a period of time. And, and that's what I mean by courage that I think has been a recurring theme in, in, in what's been helpful to me in my life is being brave enough to give it a go, being brave enough to reach outside of any of the parameters that had been set for me by status quo within family unit, being brave enough to to step out of a, you know, a conforming way of, of how to go on and be successful and, and, and make my own story. Yeah, I love that. You just gave me three definitions, three new definitions for some common words in my life. So that's those are great perspectives. Thank you. I'm curious, of all the questions you get asked and stages you've been on and podcasts like this you've done. You get asked a lot of questions. Is there ever a question you wish people would ask you, but then people don't ever do? What I will tell you is there's a question that people do ask a lot that I wish that they wouldn't. Okay. What's that? It's that one. Oh, really? It's, it's what is the question that you wish somebody had asked you that, um, that they haven't? Um, because I feel that that question is, is actually a, a rephrasing of, what would you like to brag about yourself that I haven't given you the chance to be able to talk about yet? Interesting. Okay. And the whole premise of that doesn't doesn't sit that great with me. Right. Um, 
I I enjoy the questions that I haven't thought about. I enjoy the questions that I hadn't gone to the place in my own mind or my own experience of being able to say, what do I think about that? Where I get to be able to lie, answer live and in the moment and respond with a new thought that is a new thought to me as well. Sure. Those are some of the favorite reasons that I like to be interviewed on panels or to be part of podcast shows, et cetera, is to be asked things I hadn't yet thought of myself and see what I learn about myself in the process. Right. Yeah, it forces you to think on your feet and stray from the the typical talking points or bio points that some people might regurgitate back to you that you provide for background. Yeah, yeah, and it just it it's nice to better get to know yourself better. And I think going through a series of interviews is is a great way to be able to get clarity over what you really do think. Because saying it out loud and knowing it's going to be captured, you're going to do that for one of two reasons: either it's your truth or you're trying to manipulate truth. Um, and I like the exploration of truth, which is hence why I enjoy being on these kind of shows. Sure. So what's something that you've learned about yourself in the moment in one of those Q&A scenarios? Um, yeah, plenty, actually. I, I guess there's the there's the knowledge that I, I'm pretty useful on my feet. Like, I, I like knowing that. It, it's given me great confidence of saying that I can step into a variety of different sets of scenarios without having to, to overthink them, to know that there is actually a huge amount of muscle memory and a huge amount of, of processing power to be able to get to answers real quickly. I, I've enjoyed experiencing that. What else have I learned about myself is that I'm, I'm probably a deeper thinker than often comes across in much of my work. And there are complexities to a number of things that I've shared as easy to do that I hadn't even realized. So even talking to the number of people I have done about exactly what to say. There's things that come so obviously to me through my experience that I've had the ability to learn that many others haven't had that same experience to get to that place. And that's been fun to understand is to say, okay, how do you get somebody to the classroom before you give them the lesson? Hmm. As opposed to how do you just give them the lesson? They've got to get to that point in the journey before that lesson can even serve them. And that's been fun. And I think one more thing that I've, I've probably learned about myself is that I like to be liked, but I also like to be challenged. Yeah, going back to the big fish, little pond, right? That's a, it forces you to look at your surroundings and maybe hop a pond, right, when you're challenged. Yeah, like, and I'm okay to have on-air debate. You know, I think I think it's healthy for people to show up with differences of opinion and to be able to talk it through. And I've learned that I actually quite enjoy that, and I'm okay to have my mind show, like changed even if that is in a public setting where I thought strongly one thing and then by the end of the conversation, I thought strongly something else because of what somebody else said. And that's a rare quality. Um, I've always thought that watching the, the United States go, uh, debates, right, for people that are going to get elected. <laughs> you're not, you're, I don't think we're ever going to see someone say, hey, you know what? You're right, candidate. That's a pretty good point, yeah. I agree pretty with good you point. now. I hadn't it's, thought of it that way around, but yeah. thank you for sharing that perspective. I think I'm going um, to vote for you. Yeah, it would be amazing if that would actually happen. I think people would actually vote for that guy that said that, but people are afraid to, I think, see it as a sign of weakness, right? Like to say you were wrong and then have it used against you, but it can, that's one of the greatest signs of courage, going back to a word you used earlier. Yeah, and I think it's also important though, is if you want other people to change their mind, you have to be open to changing yours. Absolutely. Yeah, otherwise, who are you to have them change their mind if you're not even willing to do it yourself? Right. So where can people find you? They like these little nuggets of wisdom you're throwing at us here on the podcast. Where can they find you for more information to check out your books, any other yeah, resources you have out there? I should be pretty easy to find on the proviso that anybody puts my middle initial into a Google search. So Phil M. Jones, 
uh, website's philmjones.com. Uh, Twitter, Instagram is at philmjonesuk. And um, yeah, always happy to be able to continue the conversation on board. So um, if there's something we've talked about today that has been particularly um, prevalent to you or something you want to get some further insight or question into, then reach out on social. Let's see how we can continue the conversation there. And I'll vouch for you on that one because that's how you and I connected. I, I read your book. I found you on LinkedIn. I shot you a message and you responded, which I wasn't quite expecting, but I was glad you did. And it led to this podcast interview. So well, you sent a personal message with a genuine compliment in it that would have meant that I would have been rude to not answer. So kudos to you on that one. In um, I get 100, 150 LinkedIn messages, connection requests most days, and the majority of them uh, are terrible. So um, thank you for showing up with some of the ingredients that we've talked about in terms of genuine empathy, genuine curiosity, genuine courage, and just proving how much that stuff can get you the thing that you are looking for if you do it the right way around. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for showing up on the podcast. I, I look forward to getting this one out there. My pleasure. Be well, my friend. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Relish the Journey. A very special thank you to our guest, Phil M. Jones, and a thank you to all of you for listening. Hope you took away some nuggets of wisdom from this one and how if you employ a little bit of curiosity, empathy, and courage, you can get more out of this life than you might have otherwise. Find Phil in the links in the show notes and where he rattled off here. And until next time, everybody, cheers. Cheers.